two of the two-year Bible. Uh, custom design to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, Pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And yes, we are beginning year two. Uh, I don't know if you feel like hopeful or discouraged that you're halfway through the Bible. Does it feel like a lot? Does it feel like a little... I'm curious. Yeah, we can't hear you if you answer that question. Uh, but uh, yeah, we we are halfway through in the midst of some messy history in Israel's past, as well as getting into um, one of the most uh, broken apart and used books in uh, the New Testament in the book of Romans. And so uh, let's kick off uh, right at 1 Kings 14. So we are left with the mess of the broken kingdoms, uh, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And... Uh, uh, Jeroboam, who has not been so good for the Northern Kingdom, uh, and it seems like there's consequences uh, mm. for his actions and the fact that his son, Abijah, is sick, which uh, I hope you notice just the chaos of these names uh, this week where yeah, there's Abijah. if you're confused, you're not alone. <laughs> there's Abijah, there's the prophet Ahijah, there's, there's Abijam. Abijam. So and not only that, but Rehoboam. the jump between Kings and Chronicles, Abijam becomes Abijah. So um, yeah, it's, it's a mess. But yeah, Jeroboam has a sick kid and is recognizing at least that prophet of Ahijah who told him that, who had spoke pretty harshly against Jeroboam, uh, at least um, is a true prophet. But he doesn't send uh, his wife to, to go ask Ahijah to pray. He doesn't He doesn't try to like seek the Lord in this process. He just goes and asks the prophet, hey, what's going to happen? As if this prophet is just some fortune teller. And so um, Jeroboam's even going to the right prophet is not going for the right reasons. Yeah. And I, again, we see, and we'll see this over and over and over again. And still it seems hard for us to learn, but the faithfulness of a king or a leader and the faithfulness of the people are interconnected. Uh, there is a link there. And so though God appointed Jeroboam to lead, he did not lead faithfully before the Lord and basically immediately led Israel into sin. And it's just going to get kind of progressively worse from here. Yeah. And Ahijah has bad news that there is, Basically, Jeroboam's son's going to die as soon as the wife heads and home. And they're not even going to get proper burials, yeah. all of his kids. Um, but uh, we, we do find out in this text that Jeroboam's problems are not just setting up these golden calves in Dan and Bethel, as, as bad as they were, but we also find out that he's setting up uh, Asherah or Asherah and poles. And for context, and uh, I'll probably hit on this a little bit more as we get into the, the story of, of Elijah, um, the, the context is like Asherah poles, they were even tied into Baal worship. Um, these are like sex and fertility cults. Their worship is tied to prostitution. It's tied to child sacrifice. So God's actions in responding to Jeroboam and even statements around Jeroboam, um, uh, as Ahijah says of him, you have done more evil than all who were before you. Um, in, in the ancient context, like of what the sort of Asherah or, or Baal worship is, I mean, it is awful. It's historically one of the, the sort of like just more insidious forms of worship. And so um, this is what Jeroboam is bringing into the culture and, and why um, God seems to have some strong reactions uh, to Jeroboam. Yeah. And he dies. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Sort of matter of fact in the text. And then we jump to storytelling from the South just to get an update on what's going on down there. Um, so Rehoboam's down there and Rehoboam is also awesome. pretty, pretty awful. Yeah. He's faithless. Not, um, he leads Judah into pagan 17 worship. 17 wicked years. And, and, and it almost feels like a one up narrative. It's like, yeah, the North had natural poles, but we had like 
they even name the prostitution basically that's happening in the temple and stuff like that. And, and so it's, it's bad. And the Egyptians come and plunder as well. And so, um, which should kind of like cause you to think back. I feel like we see a lot of creation and decreation pictures. We saw that in Genesis and Exodus. And here we're saying the growth and the success of a kingdom and then the shrinking and the falling of a kingdom, which all of these are meant to point us to an eternal unshakable kingdom that will come through the Messiah. Yeah. If Solomon was the new um, Pharaoh, then uh, they just got plundered by the Egyptians as opposed to the vice versa that happened in Exodus. And so, yeah, yeah things are going well. Uh, but we do see, um, well, not yet. Uh, we do see them fighting amongst each other too, which First uh, Kings 12 already told them, hey, don't fight amongst each other. Uh, so they're just disobeying what God has just said more and more and more. Uh, and just to confuse you more, Rehoboam has a son called Abijam. Uh, so not Abijah or Ahijah. Uh, so um, yeah, in, in three years is all this one gets. Uh, he doesn't fix his father's mistakes. Um, but God promises in this, like this guy's heart is unfaithful, but God is faithful uh, to the promise he made to David. Yeah, and I hope you saw the pattern here that the author is making. He talks about the hearts of these kings. He talks about whether they're true to the Lord or they're not true to the Lord. Uh, so we're reminded again from even what from God said to Samuel is that the Lord looks at the heart and the heart of the leader influences the heart of the people. Yep. And Asa uh, becomes king of the the southern kingdom of Judah. And so uh, we find out he's a pretty good king. Uh, He takes down all of his family's false worship. Even his grandma was doing all sorts of crazy stuff and and he deals with her. Um, And and this comment about like high places, but he left some is clarified a little bit in Chronicles. Um, High places are often more of a generic term for places of worship. Um, and we find out at least in Chronicles, he takes down all the pagan ones. And so, uh, it seems like he leaves the ones that Israel might've used for actual Yahweh worship. So, um, yeah. And we do read about how a little bit later in his life, he, um, he falls kind of away from trusting and obeying the Lord. And I just kind of, I, I have a lot of what ifs with Asa, like, or even I kind of wonder like, how did he end up being faithful to God when his father and grandfather and great grandfather were unfaithful or what would have happened in that last, in the ending when he plundered the temple of the Lord to make an alliance with the Syrian king, what would have happened if he would have just sought the Lord instead? Yeah. Uh, and so things are told a little bit out of order here. It's almost as if, uh, we hear about this Basha guy and then find out later how he became uh, king. So I'll go out of order just to, to retell. So back to the North, things are rough. Um, Jeroboam has died and Nadab has uh, taken over, uh, and he attacks the city, but he's killed in the process. And, and Basha, who's the one who kills him, uh, sort of becomes king to the North. So Nadab doesn't reign for very long. Uh, Basha ultimately becomes king to the north and he ends up wiping out Jeroboam's family. And so uh, the very prophecy that was told to Jeroboam gets sort of enacted by Basha, which is to end Jeroboam's family. And there's an interesting thing here to remember is that there is like the Davidic covenant that God made with him and this promise that David will always have a king on the throne is what we see uh, the fulfillment of in Judah, but we don't see that happening in Israel. So different tribes, different people, it's just kind of a free for all when it comes to who's going to rule. Yep. Yep. And we'll, we will continue to see that, uh, little family lines is, is a little bit more chaotic in the North. 
and so Bash is now in control. He, he sort of makes a blockade of Jerusalem, which was under the Southern Kingdom rule, um, so that their capital couldn't get all the things that it needed. And so uh, Asa uh, ends up paying some Assyrians to to attack the Northern Kingdom so that they can re- retake the road and start trade again. And so um, there's a little bit of me, as as awesome as Asa's been, to, to, to have a little bit of uneasiness to the fact that uh, Assyrians uh, get paid by the Southern Kingdom to attack the North because we will see eventually the Assyrians be the first to ultimately uh, conquest Israel and and will basically lead to the fall of the Northern Kingdom and not the Southern Kingdom. So um, there's some uniqueness, uh, I think, to Asa's story here. Yeah. And again, I mean, we see this pattern of people starting out strong, leading, obeying the Lord, and then as they get further and further into their kingdom or their rule, they start to walk away from the Lord. And so maybe we see Asa doing that a little bit as well. Uh, Second Chronicles 12. Uh, So we're jumping into storytelling uh, future history, though the events are are um, at the same time. And so, yeah, we hear about the Egyptians coming, but at least the Chronicler gives us a little more of the why. Uh, not that the Egyptians wanted just to plunder and to get cash or to conquer. Uh, but the Chronicler looked at the Egyptians coming and, and said, look, this they are here because we have forsaken the Lord. Uh, that is why. And so um, I, I like sort of that perspective, the after-the-fact perspective that, that the Chronicler brings. Yeah, and yeah, this idea that that whatever happens really is a result of the faithfulness of God and not the faithfulness of the people. Yeah. God remains faithful when we are faithless. And, and we see the Judeans actually respond. Uh, so the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and they said, the Lord is righteous. And mm-hmm. so there's some response that's happening in the Southern kingdom that does not seem to be happening in the Northern kingdom. And so uh, Abijam or Abijah uh, takes over uh, and there's still conflict with the folks in the north, uh, Jeroboam uh, and Abijam, Abijah, uh, depending on which book you're in, uh, come to battle. Abijah tells him that the northern folks are a bunch of idolaters and a bunch of heathens. Uh, Jeroboam tries to attack during this moment and Judah's outnumbered. They call upon the Lord and God helps them in the victory and Jeroboam dies in the process. And so... Um, yeah, they're, they're sort of this this remnant that exists within Judah uh, from the chronicler's perspective, certainly, that um, that there's faithful people still uh, in the midst of all this brokenness and, and terrible kings. Yeah, and we'll continue to see that idea, the concept of remnant, uh, even into Romans. But um, yeah. So pay attention to that and pay attention to what what we're seeing in the big picture and also like these little side stories of, of people who are faithful to God and the remnant God has preserved. And Asa seems to be uh, a decent king. He fortifies the city, uh, which actually ends up working out when the Ethiopians or the, the Cushites finally attack. Asa and company are outnumbered. They pray to God and God helps them bring victory and a whole lot of money back to, yeah. to Israel. So, um, we Yeah, see we see this things. pattern too. Asa trusts in God and the land has peace. So yep. we've seen that Great. before. So let's jump to the New Testament. Um, and so we are going to spend a few weeks diving into what can be a, a pretty heavy book or, or sometimes um, some some big arguments that um, Paul's making uh, in this letter. And it can be a bit of a beast, but it's also one that gets sort of hijacked by a lot of theological groups. We tend to read a lot of our theology backwards back into the book. Um, and um, sometimes we need to be careful doing that. Um, sometimes we bring our systematic lens over the top of books that we read. And sometimes it's 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 good to take that sort of step back and go, okay, what is Paul really doing here? Um, before I take this token verse that I've always used uh, for for how I view things and, and and misuse it or pull it out of the context that's supposed to be in. 
It's, yeah. I, I think it's, we have to, you know, I don't know how it ended up this way, but we can accidentally intimidate people into reading Romans to think like, well, I don't have a seminary degree, so, um, or I don't understand Jewish history or culture enough, so I can't get Romans. But remember the people who were hearing this book, like half of them were Gentile. They also didn't necessarily understand Jewish history or culture. Some of them were not literate or educated and they understood the book. And so I just want to encourage you, no matter where you think you're coming from or what kind of Bible reader you are, to know that the Lord and the Holy Spirit will reveal the truth that is to be found in this book for you. And so my goal for you guys as readers is that you will see that Romans is more than just something to read and understand with your mind, but it is a practical way of living that will transform the way you view God and the way you can understand mission. Uh, so enter it with anticipation and excitement. Uh, even if you're not necessarily the same kind of academic reader as you would expect, uh, the person to be, I guess, expect others to read it as. Yeah. There, there's definitely more practicals and less at times less academics. than I think sometimes we ascribe to this book. Um, and, and just for backdrop, cause there's a whole lot of context that really probably matters in, in how you read this book. Um, that, so in, in, in Acts two, we hear about Pentecost. We hear about all these different people groups that are in Jerusalem, uh, for the festival and the, the disciples preach, Peter preaches, a bunch of people come to repentance enlisted in those groups are Jews from Rome. And, uh, and so the question is, all right, did they take this, their conversion and, and go back to Rome and start some sort of, of, of house church or whatever they might've had, um, in that moment. And so, um, that's probably a likely scenario. And so this church started as probably these Jewish converts that have gone back to Rome who are now following Jesus and probably telling other people about that and probably convert more Jews. And, and eventually, particularly after the council, but maybe before then start converting Gentiles as well and including them in their fellowship. And then at some point, they get kicked out. So uh, eventually the, the, the Caesar has a decree to, to kick all the Jews out of Rome. Uh, like, cause they, there's a whole lot of history there. I'm, uh, maybe I'll include a link in our show notes. Uh, but anyways, uh, so they kick all the Jews out of Rome. So imagine you're a church plant 10, 15 years in, you've developed leadership. You, you, your, your leaders are probably predominantly Jewish just because they probably know the scriptures. They could teach the scriptures, uh, in, in their, uh, because of their training and background. Uh, but now you've, you've suddenly purged all that group out and, and just have this highly Gentile church with probably a fair amount of young, but converted leaders who are stepping in. And, and for about five to, to 10 or 12 years, they are in charge of the church. And then the Jewish decree sort of ends with the, the, the death of the emperor. So all these Jewish Christians, show back up in Rome and, and what's going to happen. Who's going to be in charge? How are they going to get along? Who, 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 who has a, an inner seat or an outer seat or any of those kind of questions that, that I think Paul sort of now writes this letter into that context of all these different groups who are now sort of existing in this church, um, who, Maybe there's there's power plays. Maybe there's division. Uh, there's some Gentile influence that's affecting the church that um, that Paul really has to sort of deal with. Yeah. So yeah. So we open with greetings, um, and Paul uses this term gospel a lot in these opening uh, chapter or two. And it's also important to know in Rome, I mean, uh, the the idea of euangelion, the idea of gospel um, existed 
pre the the New Testament writers using it. And, and it was language used about, it sort of went from Rome to the ends of the earth. Like that was what the Evangelion did. And it was the idea of pronouncing a king or a victory. Um, it was good news that Rome was here. A new king was here uh, and uh, peace, Pax Romana, it's going to go forth. And, and this God King is going to be the one to help bring it. And so um, there's a reason why the the New Testament writers use that, that paradigm because it was so common in their day. Yeah, I feel like with this greeting, we see where Paul is going. He wants to talk about the greatness and the salvation that is found in Christ and what it means to be set apart, whether you are a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian. We start to see already the theme of being set apart. We see the theme of the prophets and the scriptures, and he affirms that that the authority by which he is speaking is the authority of Christ alone, and we're going to see that theme throughout the book as well. Yeah, and, and he reminds them that like that this has been uh, according to the scriptures, this all, uh, which would have been the Old Testament for them. Um, that that the prophets, that the descendants of David, he reminds them of the larger story that has led to Jesus Christ, and, <clears throat> and we've received grace and apostleship, the sentship that Paul has, to, and and the purpose was to to go to make his name uh, for his namesake amongst the nations. Um, and, and there's a little bit of we versus you and stuff like that to sometimes parse out in the letter, whether Paul sometimes referring to him and his fellow sort of Jews or, um, or, or the church itself or the Gentiles in the church, but uh, it's just something to be aware of. And sometimes the pronouns that get used. And so Paul just has this longing uh, to be in Rome. It's a city that he has not uh, seem, seemingly has not visited at all, and he longs to be with them. Uh, I think Paul always had this desire to get to Rome and eventually uh, to get all the way to Spain. Um, but um, he he just longs. He thinks it'd be so mutually encouraging for him to be there uh, with them. Yeah, and here we read the first two of Paul's three sort of I am statements. Okay, so Paul says, I am obligated and I'm eager to preach the gospel. Uh, and then, of course, next he'll say, I'm unashamed. But it's cool to hear his heart and conviction behind what, what he wants to do and his commitment to share the gospel wherever he goes. Yeah, he's like, my call. My call is to all of you. Like He's obligated to to Gentiles and Greeks, and he's eager. Um, he's so so eager to get this out. Um, yeah, and then he deals with the not ashamed. and. Yeah, that, that section kind of, I had to step back and reflect as like on myself, like what of those is true of me? Do I feel obligated to preach the gospel? Am I eager to preach the gospel? And sometimes whether it's our reformed theology or even just our own fear around what we believe or sharing with people what we believe, we we do struggle with those things. But the comfort there too is that like, if Paul says I am obligated, he maybe had to struggle with not feeling obligated at times. Right. Or if I'm eager, he maybe had to struggle with eagerness at times. So he maybe was speaking that to himself as much as he was speaking that to the Romans. Uh, and then Paul introduces this idea of righteousness that gets revealed. Uh, this righteousness that's not earned. It's not, uh, it's not something we strive for, but it gets revealed and one connected to faith. Um, so, um, and, and he will unpack this. If anything, this is almost like the thesis of the letter. Uh, and, and before he gets there, though, he's going to sort of set up this, this argument um, of, of the kind of righteousness that people do try to live by, that sort of uh, how, how, how are we right? How are we, what is true about us and how do we get there? Um, and, and he's going to unpack that in, in a moment. But um, I do like that he says, from faith for faith. It's almost like this cyclical idea uh, that this righteousness comes from God, uh, and 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 that comes by faith, but that this righteousness also is is for our faith. It like produces in us faith, so that um, 
so that once again, it, we can we can have it come from faith again, and so it becomes a sort of like cyclical process of of how God works it out in us. Yeah, um, yeah. This is these two verses are kind of a thesis statement for the whole book. Did you did you already say that? Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so that's important. Let's repeat that. All right, but the other thing is that Paul is getting ready to talk about how all Jews are condemned apart from the gospel, and how all Gentiles are condemned apart from the gospel. So this idea of righteousness through faith is, that he's hitting on is going to be really incredibly powerful to them as I hear it. And so it's a reminder for us too, you guys, all we have to do is believe and we will be made righteous. And we oftentimes still try to earn God's favor through certain behaviors or actions, but there is no need to. Remembering and starting this book even with the knowledge that the favor of God rests on us because of God himself is incredible. It's beautiful. Yeah. And and I think Paul's first area of, of, targeting or, or sort of reminding of um, the, the sort of righteousness that people do strive after is actually probably the larger culture that exists at the time. And, and, and it's tied to paganism. It's more tied to this whole idea of Hellenism. Uh, and so uh, Hellenism was this Greek culture that got spread all throughout the, the sort of uh, um, Western world and into the Middle East and to North Africa uh, because of, because of Alexander the Great and Hellenism uh, was, one of the first philosophies to move from being really focused on the gods to being really focused on the self. That's why Protagoras will say man is a measure of all things. And, and the idea is it's all about you, what you want, your comfort, your leisure, your security, have it your way, the right way. Um, and, and so you had this sort of self human focused philosophy of the world um, and people groups ate it up. That's why you find Hellenistic Jews. That's why you find Hellenism in Rome. That's why it, it just went everywhere. And people are like, Oh, this sounds amazing. Like I'm not, constantly at the whims of the gods as I can think about myself for once. And so, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and Rome had a political overlay and stuff like that on top. So Caesar and Caesar's Eagles and Caesar's line, there's some devotion to Caesar, but focus on self uh, tied into that. And so, uh, but the center, the good news of Hellenism, uh, ends up being the substitution of, of God or the gods for things created for humans, for, for animals, for things in this world. And so, um, it was such a shift uh, for them. And I would argue in some ways our, our culture still is built upon Hellenism. It's still self-focused. It's still um, um, yeah. comfort-focused. And so um, Paul starts speaking to this crowd and, and to speak to this culture and, and starts at this point where saying, look, like people are not ignorant of God. There's an awareness. There's some internal radar that there's something more. So no one, no one could claim ignorance. Like just because you follow Hellenism doesn't mean you could claim ignorance because there's an exchange. There's an exchange that happens in everyone that there's a, the glory that, that should be God's alone. It gets exchanged for images of men and animals and actually sounds a whole lot like Hellenism and Caesar worship and, and how Paul phrases it, which is why I think he's dealing with this first. And he's like, look, like that whole philosophy, it leads to and God turns them over to like a dishonoring of their bodies, which um, things like homosexuality is certainly included in Hellenism, uh, and, and all this sort of debasement from covetousness to malice to, to gossip to like all the ways that your focus on self 
plays itself out. The focus on just being a human. And, and in some ways, God's showing these people like, look, worship based upon you, it doesn't work. Like the, the view of, of what is right or true or your own righteousness, like it, it falls apart. And the standard by which you judge right and wrong, like you can't measure up to that. If humans are the measure of all things, like it does not work. They can't be. You cannot make yourself what only God is. And so I think Paul's starting to expose that of just the larger culture at large before he starts dealing with people within the church. Yeah. I mean, and these topics are things that we as Christians don't like to talk about in our modern day culture of tolerance. We love tolerance. We love accepting people as they are. Um, We do like to talk about God's acceptance and the things that make us feel good, but we have to understand and continue to truly believe that God has no tolerance for sin. And before we can get to that good news of salvation, we need to hear the bad news of our own sin and our own condemnation. Every single one of us would fall into this Romans 1 category in some way or another. We are all in some way for another. We worship the creature rather than the creator, and we are those who suppress truth. It should be sobering um, and concerning. it's, it's an easy passage, I think, for us to put others in, especially like if we were to rank sins, those who commit the worst of the sins, but we all should fall and find ourselves in this as well and anticipate what good news is to come, but sit in your sin for a minute. Well, and if you are someone who does put other people into that category, Paul's got some news for you too. Yeah. Uh, and Next. so right after that, Paul seems to put up and, and, and maybe this are Gentiles who have converted. Maybe there are people that seem to be turning away from sort of that paganism and, and maybe these Gentiles once walked similarly to those, but have repented and left behind their ways. But, but Paul's reminding them, you are not better either. And, um, and Paul speaks to it being like, you know, these, maybe you're a Gentile and you didn't have the law. You didn't have the, the Torah Mosaic law, but even, even, even the natural law, like what it, what, is is right and wrong that you should follow because it's inherently uh, as part of it. Like as soon as you do those things, as soon as you obey something that is true of the universe and the laws that God has set up in, in place, well, guess what? You have created for yourself a new law. You know what is true and yet you don't consistently live up to that. Like, uh, so when you do the right things, you acknowledge the right things, but now tr- you try to live by them and you can't. And so you created this other law that even that isn't a good measuring spot. No, no amount of legalism as as a repentant Gentile is going to get you there either. That that, that standard of obedience is still going to fail you. Yeah. Um, you need a righteousness that comes apart from that because your righteousness is not going to come from you being better than the pagans outside the walls of your church. Or even just having a label on you of being Jewish, being one of God's people. I think there's an interesting passage in here that talks about how God's kindness leads to repentance. Uh, And I kind of, it's just, it's, it's one, I don't know if it's used out of context or not, but what he's talking about here is that God oftentimes will delay wrath so that people will have a greater opportunity to repent. But then Paul is pointing out that instead of repenting, these people are using God's patience and forbearance to be more and more wicked, continuing to despise the creator and love the creation. Yeah. And so, but then Paul really starts laying into probably the Jewish people within the church as well. It was sort of like this question of um, what, what about, what about those of us who have had the Torah, who have had God's law, who has God's standard for 2,000 years? And Paul even sort of fluffs them up a little bit, I think, in this text where it's like, uh, you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed in the law and you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. And he just keeps fluffing them up and then he transitions to say, uh, but you 
who um, teach people don't steal, don't you also sometimes still steal? And you say that you must not commit adultery. Doesn't that still happen or abhor idols? But yet you rob temples and, um, and and you boast in the law, but you break the law. And and he's reminding them like, look, your standard whatever standard you think you're using, which you, for the Jews would be the law, like you can't live up to that. You're going to miss the mark, which is really the term for sin. You're going to miss the mark of that. You cannot hit that target either. And so your circumcision, your obedience does not make you any better than any other. And so if anything, I think Paul's taking these groups, whether they're maybe recent pagan converts who are still struggling with their paganism, these Gentiles who have turned away from the paganism, who think they're better than the other people, or these Jews who think they're the chosen people because of of their law and their obedience and, and pushing them all down to say like, no, you are all on the equal playing field in the fact that your standard or God's standard, which is what the Jews would have had, you cannot measure up to those things. And so you need to realize that all of you fall short of anything you're trying to hit, whether you're making your own law, like man is the measure of all things, or even God's very clear standard, you all are failing to live up to it. Yeah. And I think we can do this in the church as well, leaning into our Christian quote unquote maturity um, as being the way that we can access God instead of grace and grace alone. You know, maybe you say I go to church every week or I read my Bible every day or I give generously or I've been in church since I was a kid. Uh, and because of these reasons, I can act and interact with God and with a clean heart. But this is not the case. Our behavior does not earn us favor with God any more than the Jews' behavior or the Jews' association with the law did. We are cleansed before God by Christ alone and not by our righteous acts. Yeah, and so it becomes really interesting because at some point, probably the Jews in the crowd are like, wait, if we're all on the same footing, like what advantage was there for the past 2,000 years? And Paul's sort of like, look, you as Jews should understand this sin thing more than anybody else. Like, and he even quotes Psalm 51 here, which is really David's response after the Bathsheba fall. And, and, it, and David's heart is like, look, I have been sinful from birth against you and you alone. Have I sinned? Like I, it's, it's a whole Psalm about David sort of understanding and owning and struggling with the fact that he is a sinful person. And, and so I, I think Paul's wise to quote that to these, to these Jews here being like, look, we, we as the Jews understand that all sin and fall short. Like that has been our lesson for the past 2000 years. And, and so, um, he, he's sort of like, we, that's the advantage is that we should have an understanding of this. Um, and then Paul starts to starts dealing with some of the logical uh, outplay of this, um, which he's going to have to deal with of, 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 well, if, if it shows God's righteousness more when we're unrighteous, then why should we just not sin all the time? And he's going to have to tackle that a couple of times as the letter goes, but that sort of deals with how scandalous uh, the gospel really is. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the questions Paul asks is, does their faith, faith, Fullness nullify the faithlessness, nullify the faithfulness of God by no means. Right. And uh, that's what we're reading about in the Old Testament right now. God's faithfulness to us is not contingent on our faithfulness to Him. When we are unfaithful, He uses even our our brokenness to glorify his name. So just like Paul talks about boasting in his weakness, we can boast in God's faithfulness even when we are unfaithful. And then Paul, uh, I think probably more Jew addressing his Jewish audience, but maybe still as Gentiles, uses this next section and goes through a ton of Old Testament scriptures, probably at least six, if not more. It's a very uh, rabbinic practice to, to sort of uh, what's called string together pearls to, to do these things all in a row. And Paul's pretty brilliant in the text I think he chooses here. Uh, if you sort of go back to each one of them and go, all right, what's the context? What's the context? What's the context? And if you're a good Jewish person, you know these contexts off the back of your head. And so... Um, 
And, and so he opens with quoting from Psalm 14 or 53, and that's about those who say there isn't even a God, which once again, that, that's Hellenism. It's the man is a measure, not the gods. And, and so um, he, he starts there. He moves to quotes that are about the Gentiles and the nations and those outside of faith and the ways that they sin. And then it deals with uh, the sinfulness of the Jewish people and things like Isaiah 59. And so the very pattern Paul set up from the start here becomes the very pattern of which he even quotes. It's like brilliant. He, he quotes these Old Testament texts to deal with the arguments that he just made in a certain sequence that the Jews would have picked up on and be like, yeah, like, we are. We really are all sinful and fall short. And I'm no better than my brothers that um, struggle with their paganistic roots. And so, um, yeah. And with this argument set up, uh, we're going to start dealing with questions. Okay, what purpose is the law? And he starts heading down there. He'll head down there a little bit more as we go. Um, but uh, the law helps realize we need a righteousness that comes not from trying our best or following these things. And, and, and we need something that comes from outside of us. Yeah. We see the emphasis on the ungodliness of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, and the universality of sin. Um, and Paul argues that through what he's already said, but also through the Old Testament scriptures so that the Jews will believe in it themselves as well. But we get to the heart of the gospel after this. We are all condemned, even the Jews. And the law exists, what we're reading in the Old Testament, it exists to reveal our sin. So we can't follow it, and therefore all are condemned. And I hope it kind of leads you to stop and cry out, like, God, save me. I can't save myself. And I know we're kind of breaking here, but I think it's a good place to break. I mean, for us to be generations uh, past the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, we know the good news, but the good news is even better to us when we sit in the bad news for a minute. Yeah. So yeah, that's where we're going to break in Romans for now. Uh, Psalm 62 and Psalm 53, uh, both Psalms quoted in the reading from Romans today. Psalm 62 included the God will repay each according to what is done. Um, and it's a fitting read uh, because it deals with those who are more prideful, thinks they have more power, whatever it is. And the psalmist is sort of like, oh, none of those things makes me better. Only My salvation only comes from God. Yeah, I, I just found this real theme of alone in that God, uh, not God and something else. I wait on God alone. He alone is my rock and my salvation. And so what does it look like for you to trust in God alone? Uh, what would it look like to have no backup plan apart from God? And it's off 53. Uh, David quotes, or Paul quotes David uh, here too. And and the reminder that that all sin, yet there's a salvation that comes. And, and the salvation comes from outside of us. Uh, it's not from an, an army battling to protect a city or something that David might be struggling with here, but but from Christ himself. Yeah, yeah, what a great last verse. It's, it's so messianic. Oh, the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, and it does in Christ. Yeah. So next week, what are we looking out for? All right, well, we are going to reach the part of Elijah's story next week, or at least the beginning of it. So I would encourage you to do some reading in the Gospels, especially Luke 4, because Elijah comes up a lot. So what is... Um, how does Elijah point to Christ in his actions and behaviors? And, and how is Elijah's life a continual lesson to the faithfulness of God? Um, and then in the New Testament, I would just say, like, have a dictionary close by or download a dictionary app. Don't just skip past the big words like justification or propitiation or redemption. Look them up even just in the dictionary so you have a better understanding of what Paul is trying to communicate there. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, as Sarah said, we're going to start dealing with the Elijah stories and, and him and Ahab and these prophets of Baal. And so uh, 
um, spend a moment, look up sort of a little bit of, of, of Baal, of the symbols of Baal, of what Baal represented, uh, because I think it's going to bring a lot of context to the, the little battle that Elijah has with these, uh, with, with the prophets from Baal. Um, and then as we do the new Testament, uh, sort of watch as Paul uses this rabbinic tactic of much more like, um, and it's going to be towards the end of your reading next week. But if this thing is true, how much more or better is this over here? And he does that multiple times. And, and it's a really great tactic because I, I think it really is drawing your eyes to how good Jesus is in light of some other truths, mm-hmm. uh, good or bad truths, uh, how much better Jesus is. And so, um, which I, I mean, if, if, if the end goal of argument is Jesus is better, I'm, I'm for that. And so, yeah. um, yeah, it's, it's such a good truth that Paul brings out. Yeah. Thanks y'all. Thanks guys. Thanks.